Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. My privilege today to continue the long-standing practice here at Southeastern of having a faculty member deliver a lecture to the student body each semester. This is not the first lecture delivered in chapel this semester. As you may recall, we were greatly blessed to hear two lectures, in fact, from Dr. Art Azurdia back in February. He was our speaker for the annual Adams Lectures. I want to show you a a brief clip from one of those lectures just to refresh your memory. Your effectiveness is not determined by the receptivity of your audience, but by the extent to which you faithfully represent the gospel in all of its integrity. You are not a chef, my friends. You are a butler, which means you don't have to make the meal. You just got to get it to the table without messing it up. Do you remember that? That, ladies and gentlemen, is not lecturing. That is preaching. I'm not a preaching professor, but I'm pretty sure that was preaching, and and good preaching at that. Real lectures are not so animated, and they're monotone and boring. I'm... I am here to give you a real lecture today. (laughs) The general topic of my lecture for this morning is Christianity and racism in America. Instead of chronicling the connection between Christianity and racism in America, I simply want to start by providing you with just one example of that relationship between the two. This example revolves around a man named Thomas Dixon, Jr. Who here is familiar with Thomas Dixon, Jr.? Raise your hand if you know of him. Thank you. I am focusing on Dixon to start off with, in part because he is generally regarded as one of the men most responsible for popularizing racism in America in the 20th century. He did this primarily through his novels. The first of those novels was published in 1902 and entitled The Leopard Spots. This novel tells the story of a fictional North Carolina town in the years after the Civil War, and that town is led by blacks and white Republicans. And Dixon portrays the leaders of the town as corrupt, incompetent, and greedy, and the African-American population in general as ignorant, barbaric, and lustful. The hero of this novel is a pastor, the Reverend John Durham. John Durham forms a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan and saves the town from its black and white oppressors, and does so in part through the use of violence and lynching. In the story, when one Klan member actually advocates that blacks be provided with industrial and agricultural training so as to make them better manual laborers, Dixon has the character, Reverend Durham, respond by saying that the only solution to the race problem in America is to remove all blacks from the United States. It is at this point in the story that the Reverend Durham says, quote, the Ethiopian cannot change his skin or the leopard his spots. Those who think it possible will always tell you that the place to work this miracle is in the South. Exactly. If a man really believes in equality, let him prove it by giving his daughter to a Negro in marriage. What Dixon has Durham saying there is that the African-American 
is innately inferior, and that this cannot, will not, be changed. Just as an Ethiopian cannot change his skin or a leopard his spots. Therefore, what he implied and would say more explicitly elsewhere, the races should be separated by an ocean if possible, and if not, then by law and social custom. The novel was such a success that the publisher, Doubleday, eventually produced enough copies for one out of every eight Americans living at the time to own a copy. Three years later, in 1905, he published a second novel entitled The Klansman, and it immediately became a bestseller. As you can see on PowerPoint, it's estimated he sold more than three million copies of his novels. How influential was this stunningly radical message of Thomas Dixon's? Well, Dr. Joel Williamson at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, a historian, asserts that, quote, Dixon probably did more to shape the lives of modern Americans than have most presidents, end quote. But Dixon's influence on the thinking of many white Americans did not end here. In 1915, Dixon's novels became the basis of the first major motion picture in history, a film called The Birth of a Nation. It was the most watched and highest grossing film ever produced until it was finally surpassed by Gone with the Wind. So what does Thomas Dixon have to do with Christianity and racism in America? Well, in addition to the fact that Dixon's main character is an ordained pastor, it is worth noting that Dixon was born in Shelby, North Carolina, to a Baptist pastor who remained in the ministry for 55 years until his death in 1909. And although Dixon's father was himself uneducated, he sent his sons to Wake Forest College. In 1883, Dixon graduated from the school that occupied the very ground we are on at this moment. And after graduating from Wake Forest College, Dixon was ordained as a Baptist pastor. I can't help but, but point out, make an aside here, that Thomas Dixon's older brother, A.C. Dixon, also graduated from Wake Forest College and became the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois in 1906, the year after The Klansman was published. And when the movie, Birth of a Nation, was released, A.C. Dixon at that time was the pastor of Charles Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, where he remained the pastor until he retired in 1919. But back to the younger brother, back to Thomas Dixon. After serving as pastor of First Baptist Church Greensboro and then Second Baptist Church Raleigh, Dixon in 1889, at the age of 23, became the pastor of the 23rd Street Baptist Church in New York City. Now, 10 years after that, Dixon left the ministry, and he left it in part to write his novels. But for the rest of his life, he insisted on being called the Reverend Dixon. So, thanks to Reverend Dixon and others like him, Christianity is inextricably linked to America's shameful racist past. But there's a flip side to this story regarding Christianity and American racism. It is the story of those who combated racism because they saw it as being incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is well known that some of the earliest and leading abolitionists were guided by Christian principles. It is even more well known that the civil rights leaders of the mid to late 20th century were also Christians, many of them Baptist pastors, in fact. But what about during Thomas Dixon's day? It was then, in the years after the Civil War and Reconstruction, that America was at a major crossroads where it had to decide 
what would be done with the recently freed slaves? As we have already seen, some who not only called themselves Christians but insisted on being called reverend urged America to take the path of either expelling all African Americans or, if that was not possible, then separating them from the rest of society and relegating them to the status of uneducated manual workers. Were there Christians urging the country to take a different path than that one at this time in American history? Well, unfortunately, the names of such individuals do not easily come to mind, as they do with, say, the, the era of abolitionism or of the civil rights movement. But this morning, I want to tell you the story of such a person. He was one of those rare individuals living in Thomas Dixon's day who recognized that America was at a crossroads and who sought to lead the country down the path of acknowledging the innate humanity and equality of African Americans, and that he did so in part at least because he was a Christian. The story I want to tell you this morning is that of a man named Thomas Good Jones. <clears throat> and this is a story that may not be the most exciting story in the world, but it's one that I know you have not heard. That's because it is the story told in a book that I published last summer. And based on the, the reports I've gotten on how many copies I've sold, I can say in full confidence no one here knows that story. <laughs> For the sake of time, I will skim over his early years and for now just point out that he was born into a wealthy, wealthy, devoutly Episcopalian, slave-owning family, that he served on Robert E. Lee's staff for, in the Confederate Army. In fact, General Lee chose Jones to carry the flag of truce to the Union lines at Appomattox Courthouse thus signaling the end of the Civil War. After that war, Jones returned to his home in Montgomery, Alabama, married a girl that he grew up with in uh, his home church, St. John's Episcopal Church. The couple were married in the church and remained active, lifelong members of the church until their deaths. After an unsuccessful foray into farming, <clears throat> Jones became a lawyer in 1868. His law practice and reputation flourished so that by 1884, he was elected to the Alabama House of Representatives. Two years later, he was Speaker of the Alabama House of Representatives. In 1890, <clears throat> Jones was somewhat unexpectedly elected governor of Alabama. I will spare you the, the details of how that happened, but in short, the Democratic State Convention became deadlocked as it was seeking to nominate someone for governor, and Jones emerged as the dark horse compromise candidate. So he gets the Democratic nomination and easily wins the gubernatorial election of 1890. While many in Alabama were surprised by his unexpected ascent to the governorship, many more were shocked by his inaugural address. In his inaugural address, he told lawmakers to forget about the plans that Jones knew of, their plans to call a state constitutional convention for the purpose of disenfranchising African Americans. <clears throat> Jones told those lawmakers that as governor, he would oppose any effort to take away the right to vote from African-Americans. Secondly, he also told lawmakers that he opposed their plan to fund black schools, black public schools, solely through the taxes paid by African-Americans. Jones pointed out that whites in Alabama owned 95% of the taxable property in the state and that the revenue generated from the remaining 5% would make it practically impossible to keep black schools open. Of course, for some white Alabamians, this was precisely what they wanted. <clears throat> In fact, one of Alabama's two U.S. senators, 
John Tyler Morgan, spoke in favor of the bill then pending in the Alabama legislature, the bill that Jones said he opposed. And Senator Morgan asserted that blacks and whites would always compete against one another and that educating blacks was akin to aiding the enemy. <clears throat> Senator Morgan, by the way, held his U.S. Senate seat from 1877 until he died in 1907. Finally, in his inaugural address, Jones declared his intention to end Alabama's convict leasing system. In this system, the state leased its prisoners, its convicts, to landowners, to corporations. <clears throat> the landowners and corporations worked the prisoners and paid the state for the work done by the prisoners. Jones pointed out that African Americans made up a disproportionate number of those in the system and that the system as practiced was inhumane. Jones's address <clears throat> was denounced by most in his party and by most of the major newspapers in Alabama. The legislature was controlled by the Democratic Party. <clears throat> they did, for the time being, set aside their plans to call a, a constitutional convention. And they did give up on their plan to base the funding of black schools solely on taxes paid by African Americans. But they did change the system <clears throat> by giving the local school board the right, the authority, to spend money as they wished. And to no one's surprise, those local state, those local school boards spent the lion's share of the funds on the white schools in their districts as opposed to the black. And as for the convict leasing system, all Jones could get from the legislature was the forming of a committee with him as the head of the committee to investigate the system. In 1893, Jones again shocked his fellow Democrats by demanding that the state legislature take steps to end the lynching of African Americans in Alabama. Jones went to the legislature and, and informed them that he had called out the state militia at least a dozen times to try to stop lynch mobs from their grisly work, but that in every instance they were unsuccessful. <clears throat> Local law enforcement officials, Jones said, were in the best position to stop a lynching, but that they all too often either turned a blind eye to what was going on or, or were actually involved in the lynching themselves. Jones, therefore, <clears throat> sent a recommendation to the legislature. First, he recommended <clears throat> that he, as governor, be given the authority to remove any sheriff or law enforcement official who was negligent in stopping a lynching. Secondly, that sheriffs be given the authority to call up a posse of citizens to confront a lynch mob. And thirdly, most shockingly, <clears throat> that in forming a posse, that sheriffs actually arm any and all prisoners in their jail to help <clears throat> uh, form this posse with the promise that if they assist in stopping the lynching, that their jail sentences would be reduced. The famous anti-lynching crusader Ida B. Wells said in response to Jones's message to the legislature, quote, no stronger nor more effective words have been said in the effort to eradicate lynching than those from Governor Jones, end quote. The legislature did not even consider his proposals. And during the last two years of Jones's governorship, it is estimated that more than 40 African Americans were lynched in the state of Alabama. During those same two years, Governor Jones's convict leasing committee uncovered <clears throat> numerous flaws in the system and, and released uh, several reports showing that hundreds of convicts were dying each year due to malnutrition, neglect, dangerous working conditions, even exposure to the elements. 
Likewise, many of those leasing the convicts were physically and sexually abusing those convicts, and in many instances, forcing them to work well beyond the expiration of their prison sentences. These revelations actually prompted the legislature to take to purchase land for the purpose of building a state penitentiary to replace the one that had been destroyed during the Civil War. Those who leased convicts housed and clothed and fed them, so it was necessary to have a, a penitentiary in place before the convict leasing system could end. Unfortunately, Jones's successor as governor, William Calvin Oates, a Democrat, called for maintaining the convict leasing system in his inaugural address as governor. He asserted that the cost of building the penitentiary and maintaining the prisoners there would place an undue burden on the state's budget, particularly in conjunction with no longer receiving revenue from those leasing convicts. So in one of its first acts in the 1895 legislative session, the state legislature repealed its plan to build the state penitentiary. As a result, Alabama, which under Jones had been on track to be the first southern state to end its convict leasing system. In the end, Alabama was the last southern state to end its convict leasing system. It did not end that system until 1928. From 1900 to 1928, it is estimated that 90% of those in the convict leasing system in Alabama were African Americans. So as governor, Jones had sought to lead his party, his state, his region, down a different path in the matter of race relations, but they did not follow his lead. Instead, the Alabama Democratic Party, in fact, continued to push for a constitutional convention so as to limit the ability of African Americans to vote. And in 1901, they finally got their wish. Jones, who had resumed his law practice after being governor, ran for and was elected to the 1901 State Constitutional Convention. And there, he once again called for, unsuccessfully, fighting against lynching, protecting um, funds being dedicated to black public schools. But most importantly, Jones emerged as a leader of a small number of delegates who opposed the main purpose of the Constitutional Convention, the disfranchisement of blacks. In several long and passionate speeches and in a series of heated debates, one of which grew violent and Jones actually had to uh, pull out a knife on the floor of the State Constitutional Convention to protect himself, he denounced the effort to take away the right to vote from African Americans. Nevertheless, the delegates approved an article to the Constitution that stipulated that one could vote in Alabama, one, if he was literate, take a literacy test, two, owned a certain amount of property, which most African Americans did not, three, paid a poll tax, and four, that person could prove that he was directly related to someone who could vote in Alabama before the Civil War, before slavery had ended. When the Constitution went into effect at the end of 1901, Alabama had the most stringent and effective disfranchisement law of any southern state. Before the Constitution, there were 85,000 African Americans registered to vote in Alabama. After the Constitution went into effect, that number went from 85,000 to fewer than 4,000. Just a week after that Constitution went into effect, one of Alabama's two federal judges died. 
the man who would pick his replacement was Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt had just become president a month earlier as a result of William McKinley's assassination. Because there were no Republican office holders in Alabama, Theodore Roosevelt reached out to Booker T. Washington and asked him to recommend someone to be federal judge. Washington at that time was the acknowledged leader of African Americans, and he was the head of the school that he had founded, the Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. Washington had been born into slavery, was nine years old when the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. He was taught to read by Christians who had moved into the South from the North as missionaries to help African Americans make the transition from slavery to freedom. Washington initially attended the Wayland Baptist Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., in hopes of becoming a pastor, but before finishing his studies there, moved to the Hampton Institute, which had been established by the American Missionary Association, and finished his college work there. After graduating, he moved to Alabama, where he opened the Tuskegee Institute. Booker T. Washington told President Roosevelt that the only man for the job was Thomas Goo Jones. We now know that Thomas Goo Jones and Booker T. Washington had a relationship going back to 1890, that the correspondence between the two men began when Jones was elected governor. We know that when Jones ran for re-election in 1892, some of Booker T. Washington's top lieutenants, his his main assistants, uh, openly and publicly campaigned for Thomas Goo Jones. And when Washington sent a letter to the delegates at the 1901 Constitutional Convention, and the delegates voted not to have that letter read aloud to them, Jones immediately took to the floor, chastised his delegates, fellow delegates, and uh, convinced them to change their mind. And they listened uh, to Booker T. Washington's letter uh, begging them not to disenfranchise African Americans. On the basis of Washington's recommendation, Roosevelt appointed Jones to the federal bench in 1901. A week later, Roosevelt rather innocently invited Booker T. Washington to meet with him in person at the White House. When word got out that the black leader had not only entered the White House, but had actually shared a meal with Roosevelt and his family, Roosevelt was engulfed in a firestorm of criticism. Just to give you a taste of this controversy, read what U.S. Senator Ben Tillman said in response to this episode. Those were anxious days for Alabama whites. Not only did they have to worry about Alabama blacks forgetting their place as a result of seeing one of their own eat a meal in the White House. But they also had to worry about the fact that the one man who opposed the article of the Constitution disenfranchising African Americans was now in a position to strike it down as unconstitutional. Those fears were realized when a black janitor at the post office in Montgomery, Alabama named Jackson Giles filed suit in federal court asserting that the Alabama Constitution violated his U.S. constitutional rights. In a secret coded letter that a fellow historian of mine uh, discovered and decoded, Washington asked Jones to um, get this case to the Supreme Court as quickly as possible and urged him not to hand down a ruling on the decision because by doing so, it could be appealed and would be in legal limbo for years. And so Jones 
complied and was able to send the case directly to the Supreme Court. But to Jones's and Washington's surprise, that court, filled with Republican appointees, actually ruled against Jackson Giles. The court said that the question brought before them was a political one and not a legal one, and that if Giles believed his civil rights as a citizen of the United States had been violated by the state constitution, that he could appeal to the U.S. Congress for relief, knowing there would be no relief from such a source. Soon after the Supreme Court handed down that disappointing decision, Jones learned that an old white farmer had been murdered as he was walking back to his home, murdered within a mile of his home. Jones learned that someone informed police that earlier in the day, that farmer had been seen with a black man named Horace Maples. Police in Huntsville arrested Maples on Saturday morning. Huntsville was abuzz that morning with thousands of people in town for an ice cream supper that was being hosted that night by the Daughters of the American Revolution. When word got out that a black man was in jail, suspected of murdering a black man, uh, a white man, excuse me, a crowd of more than 2,000 people descended on the courthouse square of Huntsville demanding that Maples be turned over to them out of the Madison County Jail. Maples had not even been questioned by police yet, and there was no evidence that he was guilty of the murder. Nevertheless, the mob set fire to the jail. When the smoke and flames threatened to overwhelm those who had taken refuge on the second floor, the sheriff forced Maples to jump out of a second-story window into the hands of the mob waiting below. Maples was severely beaten until he confessed to the murder. A noose was then placed around his neck, the rope thrown over the branch of an elm tree in the courthouse square. Maples was then hoisted into the air until he died. Several in the mob then shot the dangling body. Others cut off his fingers and items of his clothing, apparently, as keepsakes. His body hung from the tree throughout the evening, surrounded by decorations put on the trees in the square by the daughters of the American Revolution. No American had been convicted of a crime as a result of a lynching. And when it became clear that local authorities in Huntsville would continue that trend, that they were not going to arrest anyone for this act, Judge Jones ordered the U.S. attorney to arrest any known members of the mob. He instructed the U.S. attorney to charge them with depriving Horace Maples of civil rights guaranteed to him by the U.S. Constitution. Jones's actions made headlines all across the nation the following day, as no federal official, much less a federal judge, had ever asserted that the federal government possessed the authority to apprehend and prosecute members of a lynch mob. After two individuals were arrested, Jones impaneled the federal grand jury, and after explaining to them for two hours how those men had violated the 13th and 14th Amendments, the jury indicted the two men. The indictments touched off a flurry of commentary in in the nation's newspapers, many of them complaining of federal interference in local and state matters. However, before the men could be put on trial, the Supreme Court handed down 
a decision in a case known as Hodges versus the United States. The Hodges case stemmed from white men who had been uh, arrested in Arkansas for forcing blacks to leave their homes and their jobs in an Arkansas sawmill town. And they were forced out so that whites could have those jobs in their, those homes instead of blacks. In the Hodges decision, the Supreme Court declared, among other things, that the 13th and 14th Amendments do not apply to the actions of private individuals. If you read those amendments, it says no state shall. <clears throat> so in other words, individual, individual whites who chased blacks away from their jobs or individual whites who lynched an African-American could not be prosecuted on the basis of the 13th and 14th Amendments. With this Supreme Court decision, Judge Jones's case against the two alleged lynchers of Horace Maples fell apart, the charges were dropped, and the men were released. No one was ever punished for the burning of the Huntsville jail or the murder of Horace Maples. More importantly, state and local officials throughout the South continue to tolerate the lynching of African Americans. And though the frequency of lynching declined with time, it was a practice that continued well into the 20th century. But of all the things Jones did as a federal judge, none was more controversial or garnered more attention than his crusade against debt peonage. Now, debt peonage could take uh, various forms, but in general, it was a situation in which one person was, was held and worked practically as a slave, <clears throat> primarily because he owed someone else money. He was in debt. Oftentimes, a person, usually an African-American, found himself in debt because he had been arrested on trumped-up charges, oftentimes. And the judge sentencing him would give him the choice, go to jail, which oftentimes meant going into the convict leasing system, or here is someone who's willing to pay a fine for you if you work for him for a set amount of time. <clears throat> or it could be a corporation, landowner. Another way in which people found themselves in debt peonage was simply by renting land, which most African Americans did at this time. If they fell behind in paying the rent, they were in debt to the landowner. But when that became rather commonplace, southern states, one by one, including Alabama, passed laws stipulating that if you were indebted to your um, landlord uh, and you were living on his land, you could not leave that land. By this means, hundreds of thousands of African-Americans and many whites found themselves in slave-like circumstances, at least to the extent that they were not free to leave where they lived and where they worked, and oftentimes could not refuse to do what was commanded of them. Just after being appointed to the federal bench, Jones learned of this system when a woman came to him and said that she had been searching for her husband only to find out that he had been arrested and after being convicted had allowed someone to pay his fine and that he was working for that individual for six months and had to investigate the matter to find out his whereabouts. Judge Jones ordered the U.S. Attorney to arrest anyone holding people in a state of debt peonage. For several years, this went on, where Judge Jones and the U.S. Attorney put men on trial for holding others in a state of debt peonage. In some cases, the trials ended in mistrials. In other cases, Jones was probably too lenient in the sentences he uh, handed down. But for years, he did what he could to end debt peonage in Alabama. In 1908, he teamed up with Booker T. Washington again 
this time in an effort to end peonage throughout the South. He and Washington decided to put together a test case to go to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court would hopefully strike down uh, state laws that made it um, so that indebted people could not leave land um, owned by their landowners, their, uh, their landlords, excuse me. Jones and Washington found the case with an indebted black laborer named Alonzo Bailey. Bailey had been arrested because he had left his employer's land. According to the correspondence between Jones and Washington, the black leader, Washington, paid all the legal cost, and Jones provided them with the legal arguments to argue before the Supreme Court. In January 1911, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Bailey's favor. That case, Bailey v. Alabama, struck down Alabama's debt peonage law and those of other states. It was also the first Supreme Court decision in over 30 years handed down in favor of African Americans. Even though the decision did not completely eradicate debt peonage, it ended a popular form of involuntary servitude in the South, one that had been sanctioned by state laws. Throughout his career, public career, as Jones told Theodore Roosevelt in a private letter, he almost daily, almost weekly, excuse me, received death threats. And that from the time that his governorship ended, that he had paid out of his own pocket for, um, for private detectives to protect his family. Yet he persisted in his efforts to protect the lives and liberties of African Americans. But the question that arises is, is why? Why would the son of a wealthy slave owner, why would a Confederate veteran not only deviate from his fellow white Southerners on how best to solve the race problem, as it was called, why would such a man even go so far as to try to force the federal government to intervene in the affairs of the South to protect the lives and civil rights of African Americans? Well, I've spent years trying to answer that question. I have combed through innumerable boxes of documents in archives and have read more text than I care to remember. <clears throat> and unfortunately, I have not come across a letter by Jones in which he says, I did what I did because I would love to come across such a letter. And so I can only go by the evidence available to me to explain his actions. And on the basis of what I have read, I would say there are several factors that explain Jones's actions, but that one of them quite clearly was his Christian faith. As I read through reminiscences of those who knew him best, I was struck by how often they referred to his faith, to his activity in the church. <clears throat> and that caused me to go back and look at what he said, look at his rhetoric, how he defended his positions, how he tried to convince others of the same position to take the same position. And what, I, what struck me was how often he um, pointed to right and to wrong. So for instance, when, when it came time for him to oppose the funding of black public schools on black taxes, he said, this is, I oppose this not only because it's unconstitutional, this is a quote, but because it's wrong. It's wrong in principle, and in morals, end quote. Now, he cited legal reasons, economic reasons for ending convict leasing, but I was struck by how often he referred to the system as, quote, unjust and immoral. And at the 1901 State Constitutional Convention, one of the main ways in which he tried to convince delegates not to disenfranchise blacks 
was by reminding them several times of what he called the golden rule, saying to them, treat African Americans as you would wish to be treated if roles were reversed. Of course, these appeals to morality are not explicitly Christian, but I think they do point to an underlying Christian morality worldview. But there are some instances where I think his Christianity is more explicit. The first example I want to give you is when Jones sought to convince a grand jury that it should indict those accused of lynching Horace Maples. It may be difficult to see on PowerPoint, but after a brief opening paragraph, this is how Jones, a federal judge, starts basically a federal decision. How many federal judges start a decision this way? He says this, In the beginning, when the Creator made the earth and placed man upon it, he was man's only lawmaker and judge. He, God, could have continued to the end of time as the only lawgiver and judge of the children of men. He did not so choose. He wrote in the heart of every human being the instinct between right and wrong. And then for some wise purpose of his own, instead of himself directly governing man, committed to man the awful power of government. Thus God made us keepers of our fellow man and entrusted us to his divine power. So then he turned to the jurors and said, you are exercising, quote, God-delegated functions. And those are the highest and noblest of functions in which men can be engaged, end quote. And so he concluded in a, in a lengthy passage. I'm just quoting portions of it. And he says, quote, when we come here, we must put aside as far as possible passion, prejudice, and partisanship and try earnestly under the oath we've all taken, so help me God, to keep out of mind and out of sight any personal or racial or political passions and to do justice as God has implanted the sense of it in our hearts. Now, I've read lots of case law and charges, and never had I come across such language in a federal decision or a charge to a jury. Likewise, when sentencing a justice of the peace who conspired with landowners to keep blacks in a state of involuntary servitude, Jones told him that his greatest crime was not violating some federal law. He said, your greatest crime was, quote, disobeying God's great law of honor and justice, which bids the powerful and the strong not to oppress the downtrodden and the weak. Finally, in an instance in which a jury refused to convict a white man of holding a black man in peonage, Judge Jones did not point them to the law and what the law said, but rather reminded them that they had taken a solemn oath to God to render a true verdict. And then this is what he said in his final appeal to them. He said, there is one issue, and that is between us and our God, to which I must allude. There are 12 white men on the jury, and there's one white man on this bench. Every officer of this court is a white man. The question between us and God and our consciences is can we rise above our prejudices, if we have them, so far that we as white men are able and willing to do a Negro justice. God forbid that your verdict should be other than just. It is shameful and regrettable that we can look back to a critical juncture in the history of race relations in America and point to obvious examples of people like Thomas Dixon claiming to be Christians and publicly proclaiming not only an unbiblical view of mankind, but actually sanctioning the oppression of fellow human beings made in the image of God. It is likewise regrettable that there are so few people that we can identify as Christians who opposed people like Thomas Dixon at that time. But I would assert that Thomas Goo Jones is one of those individuals. And it is my prayer that if God tarries, that future generations of Christians will be able to look back at our day 
and be able to say that the church in our day did not promote injustice, did not tolerate injustice, but rather that the church in our day promoted the brotherhood of all races, even when doing so was counter to the culture at large. Let me pray for us, please. Our Heavenly Father, I want to pray for those who are hearing my voice now and for all those who call on the name of Christ in this generation or that you would lead us to be guided by your word alone, not by what the culture tells us, not by what our politicians tell us, but by your word alone. And may we love our fellow man. May we love justice. And may we do what is right in your eyes so that you too one day may turn to us and commend us for the work done on earth just as we hope future generations of Christians can look to us and say the same thing. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.